0: Welcome to Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. And in Series 1, we talked to so many electronic music legends, including Gary Newman, Fatboy Slim, Goldie, mary Hobbs. You can go to Deezer.com for full interviews or subscribe to Trailblazers via your usual podcast provider. Uh,
1: That's right. And uh, Trailblazers, all about celebrating the very uh, finest uh, electronic music pioneers. And this was an interesting one, actually, because I thought this was a little bit of a sort of left-field choice for us to do uh, mal from cabaret voltaire and uh, it, one of the interesting things about the way that it works between you and, and i eddie is there'll be somewhere i'm like hey hey we've got to do whoever and, and this was one where you were like wow we can get mal from cabaret voltaire nick we've got to do it and i was a little bit like mm, and you were like no no come on we've got to be done and of course uh, you're absolutely
0: right well yeah i had to talk you round, but that's just i think um, it brings into focus our different childhoods and our different uh, kind yeah. of weaning onto electronic music. You know, and that's I was right. a guy I came in through post punk and stuff like that, and you came in, you know, with with Andy Smith that's through right. soul with through hip hop and yeah. rare groove and soul. And Correct. so I revere Cabaret Voltaire yeah. as just one of the greatest, most influential electronic bands ever. Yeah. And I had to sort of talk you around, yeah. but that's no, but you know, it's all good though, right? Yeah, it's all good. And and uh, like we keep saying to each other, it is an education and uh, an entertainment. This podcast, and that's why we both. Love it so much. And so with that in mind, let's uh, have a look into the fascinating life of one of Sheffield's, and that is to say, uh, the UK's greatest musical cities, brightest and most shining lights. Deezer Deezer. Originals.
2: Trailblazers. Stephen Mallinder.
0: Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva founder, Nick Hawks. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire, invite another dance music legend like Nick to to talk to us by the fireside, as it were, to talk about the cultural fires that they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtracked their fascinating lives. This week's Firestarter is a bass player, singer, producer, composer, poser, sonic test pilot and one of so many reasons why Sheffield is pound for pound the greatest musical city in the UK if not the world. Frontman of one of the coolest, most influential and revered electronic musical bands in the world, Cabaret Voltaire and as such one of my personal musical heroes. Stephen Malinder, Mal to his mates, welcome to Trailblazers
3: Thanks Nick, thank you Eddie, that was very nice. It was good wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. I feel, ooh I'm all pumped up now. Excellent, well this is this is good.
0: Well, uh, you know, uh, it, like it, it's all from the heart, man. You know, you're a total hero, and all of those words are absolutely true. They, and there is something about Sheffield, and I, I've talked about this. It's traditional for Nick to ask the first question, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to muscle uh, in. We're with in uh, the, the script. Here's the thing: what is it about Sheffield? I have this theory that it, it actually is way statistically it's a statistical anomaly in that you can name we could all name 10 life-changing bands right now from that city why are there so many life-changing bands out of one little city in in yorkshire
3: uh it's because of Cabaret Voltaire, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the answer that I've
0: been looking for. Of we course, start,
3: yeah, we started it. Um, it's, well, no, but there, it's funny because there isn't, there is, it doesn't have a natural music history in that, a heritage, shall I say, in that sense. I mean, we didn't grow up with the only acts that we knew from Sheffield were Joe Cocker, uh, who was, a, you know, a gas fitter in Sheffield. Uh, and somebody called Dave Berry, who was kind of around in the 60s. And they were the only... It was really funny. When we grew up, they were the only artists that had ever existed in the city. Joe had obviously left and been massive, you know, uh, in the States as a soul singer. And Dave Berry was still kind of like a local thing. So... Tony Christie aside, there was no one else really. So it was really funny. We didn't have any, there was no sort of template or anything we had to adhere to or we, we were not we have to follow anyone. So yeah. we strangely didn't have musical heroes. So it was like a, you know, tabula rasa, as they say. It was a clean, clean slate in which Sheffield started to work from. But I don't really know why. I <laughs> talked about this with John McClure and he, he said it's.
0: He, he thought it was because of the size because everybody, um, he said, everybody knows each other and everyone's got each other's back and they all help each other out. There might and, be and there might
1: be something in sort of optimum sort of size thing that look like you get up to a certain population you're not big enough for certain things to happen and then beyond another sort of level of population something else I don't know I
3: don't know it's, it is really it, it 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 is really interesting I'm I'm not sure myself I think in part it's it's boredom as well I mean unlike. Leeds probably not massively different from Sheffield, but but Manchester there was it, it was a it was a commercial centre, it was a media centre. Same with Leeds TV and everything's based there. So it had its kind of strangely had its cultural kind of context but Sheffield didn't so it kind of worked in like a, in a vacuum Sheffield always seemed to work in a vacuum mm. we had, and it goes back to the idea that there's no one else came from there there was no reference points yep. and we didn't there wasn't anything else and boredom is is usually a good reason why people start doing things It's a great motivator actually you've just reminded me that's, that's pretty much what
0: John McClaw said as well Reverends, Reverend and the Makers John you know he said that the the, the, the context of everything is, it's so kind of miserable and kind of down that people want to sort of push past that. And it actually it's just occurred to me that it's like a it's like a wine thing. Wine is always better when the vine struggles. Like you're not allowed to water your vine in <laughs> an Appalachian in France because it'll make better wine if you allow the vine to struggle and it, it pushes, it sort of pushes and becomes more noble. And that's kind of what's happened with Sheffield.
3: Yeah, strength strength through austerity. And- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh God, don't, don't uh, tell that to the
0: conservatives. No, no, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll reverse that. I'll reverse that. Yeah. It is astonishing though isn't it you know that you can you know you literally just reel off band after band after band that are life-changing you know they say uh, a good record will make you late for work but a a great record will make you quit your job and there are so many job quitter bands Mm -hmm. out of that city and you're in one of them yeah Yeah,
3: i think also it's a lot of it the, the the sort of really i suppose Significant period was was also at a time when bands could thrive in the sense that mm. you, you, there was kind of you, people were on the YTS scheme. There was a whole kind of support system, which is very true. And from that period, pe- people th- there was a big sudden sort of spurt
1: and a growth from. from and those and bands. that's a fair point because you look at somewhere like I don't know how deep we want to go into this. It almost takes the podcast <laughs> off into a different <laughs> sort of territory. But like Coventry in the eighties, equally boring, equally depressed, and yeah. out comes some amazing stuff from there but not
3: really since i think i think the other thing as well it's about spaces and i mean i've I've talked about or written about this and in the sense that as industry as the industry declined and the little mesters and the workshops went, it just left an abundance of spaces to, for people to rehearse in and things like that. So it yep. became it became a lot more just just easier to yes. actually do things. So the the availability of spaces, communication, that kind of networking that mm. allowed, and a sense of, uh, not isolation, but in the sense disconnect that, that, yep. that Sheffield slightly had a little bit compared to other northern cities mm. at that time. I, I find it fascinating. So anyway, sorry to take us off piece, but actually, sorry
0: in the context That's you know good. in the context of what we're doing here with uh, with we, mal of what you know one of the greatest bands from sheffield i think that was entirely relevant absolutely so, nick why don't you fire your traditional first question
1: <laughs> well well i i was just going to say mal we're going to dig into the to the history and and and, and really understand how the the, the journey has, has has been shaped i'm interested in what you're doing like today yesterday tomorrow what's what's
3: going on with you at the moment well, last night I was actually doing a talk uh, in Foyles in Charing Cross Road for ah. the launch of David Stubbs's uh, new book, which is right. Mars by 1980, which is sort of the history of electronic music. And so right. there was a chat, uh, there was a talk there and obviously a book signing. So I did that. So I do things like that. So yeah. I was actually, it, that's specifically what I was doing yesterday. Mm. Um, and the day before that, I was in Brighton because I live in Brighton and I kind of, Divide my time between making music and the stuff I do, uh, which I guess we'll chat about as, as the this goes on, but yeah. also I do a couple of days a week and I teach at... Uh, I'm at Brighton University and right. I work on the sound arts and digital music. Right, okay. So, um, which is brilliant because I work with, obviously, younger people working in very creative ways, working yeah. with sound. So it's nice to do that and, yeah, and I, my life is made up of lots of different bits and pieces of writing, bits of teaching... Talks, making music, gigs, whatever it might be, yeah. Sounds. Yeah. I do wash, I take in washing. You, function. <laughs> you know, oh, like do laundry, yeah. Yeah. Whatever you want, yeah. <laughs> Cab driving, yeah. It's all,
0: It all sounds, it all, it all sounds I'm, really I good. i just trying to imagine, I, I. like, I wish I'd had you as a music teacher. Like, you know, like, these people are so lucky. Do they know how lucky they are? I mean, when, when you introduce them, so, yourselves to them, I, I'm guessing you don't say I'm from one of the coolest bands in the whole world ever.
3: No, and if I do, they go who? Yeah, well, yeah fair enough. But I mean, it'd be true. And uh, it, yeah. well, it's no, I don't. Uh, I don't. And it's quite nice if the students pick up on it. No, I mean, I I do. T- obviously, they know that I've got a music history. Yeah. Although it's reached a point where most of them go, oh yeah, my mum and dad have got you in their record collection. <laughs> so I've reached that stage. And my dad says, will you come round for tea and things like that. So I get occasionally get that. And also just the way it works and the way we work with students and everybody works with students is it's encouraging them. So to be quite honest, I get so much more out of working with them than they probably do out of me. I'm just this sort of person from historically kind of known for stuff, but I'm more interested in what they're doing. So I'm fascinated by kind of the world that we've all been, you know, been part of creating and and where where that legacy of it goes particularly in electronic music. So the relevance been talking last night about the history yeah. of electronic music. Yeah. Yeah. But most of my context is in where it is today and where it's going tomorrow and what what, what those things are going to be. So right. it's kind of I find that fascinating. So I love to you know I'm very happy talking about the context and the past and everything but mm. uh, I think it's more interesting when that is Again, put put in a, in in, a, in the current world and where things are going. So I enjoy that part. Do do you ha- do you have any key thoughts on on where things are going? I suppose to paraphrase what came up last night, we finished the conversation about you know the conversation being, what did I th- think of electronic? Where was electronic music going? And and I, th- I really thought the answer to that was there is no such thing as electronic music as we understand it. That's mm-hmm. historically placed. So right. I just think it's how. How sound works as a medium now. The world has changed massively. I don't fully understand how commercial music works now because since we've lost, you know, it's been dematerialised music, we've lost the form. Mm. There's no CDs. You know, obviously it's great. We bring out vinyl and there's a fetish side to that and it's lovely. But the (laughs) object of music has gone. So it's interesting how it's been how it's been driven down to its pure form, you know, its it's lovely waveform, as, as yeah. we would say. You know? it's just,
0: or as Mike Skinner says, it's just numbers in a machine. Yeah, it's binary <laughs> for most people. Yeah. It is.
3: And so it it's interesting how that then works. So it, it tends to be how sound works as a medium and how it moves through time and how it moves through space. So it's fascinating. And I don't really know the answer to that because we've lost our... Traditional understandings of what music has been, obviously gigs are, are, are still are still there, but mm. music somehow still needs to have form, and so it's interesting how it works on you know with, you know on the internet and how streaming works, and I'm just fascinated by how we access music, how we share music, and how we how it moves around. And I don't really know the answer. I think for people of my generation, it's artists, it's kind of difficult because. Well, you know their, their income stream has gone. You know it's been replaced by a digital stream. It's not, you know, the, the added value mm. of music, the exchange value rather of music is is no longer there. Mm. People don't pay for it in that way. So it's interesting how music will develop. How will artists develop? Because it's not there isn't that import. You have to create it all yourselves. But then at the same time, it's so easy to make music. So I, I don't really know. I'm it not sure. really
1: is a mix. We asked. Daniel Miller, something along these lines, and I said, uh, "Are you an optimist? Are you pessimistic?" And I, th- I can't remember what he said actually. We'd <laughs> have to go back, go back and listen. But I think he he he, he was sort of realistic, kind of realism and enthusiasm and and I think his hope was that that would deliver gr- new things you speak to some people who are like this is a great time for the music industry because blah 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 because digital growing and you know it's rebooted labels and so, I don't know man I'm I'm, I'm like yeah I'm a bit mixed on the whole thing really
3: it's quite a conundrum really to, to particularly to try and predict where it will where it will go from here as I say it's interesting to see how how it's beco- how it will become monetized so I don't really know is, is it becoming more corporate is it more about branding is it kind of corporate support of it i'm not really sure on the one hand it is it's very liberating and it's democratized things people can make music put it up online you know you don't even need a website now but
1: but then you look at the, the the sales charts and it's it's skewed much more towards the major labels than was the case in previous years so in theory those those um, advocates of, oh, it's a, very, a great liberating, democratising time for music, this is going to be so good that you can independent artists can blah, blah, blah actually when it comes to sales, I mean, go on look on the Spotify charts or what have you and you, you see very little breaking through from from any kind of independent or alternative sector. Yeah,
0: but that doesn't take into account all of the uh, thousands of little producers that are just sitting in their bedrooms, making music, putting it out on Bandcamp and having a little income from that which, yes. which they can... L- scratch a living out of yes and and you know that's that's really cool Yeah. You know, that part of it. And all of this is really interesting, but I feel I feel as though we're going to go down a wormhole. So I'm going to just I'm going to just rein it in and just say we've got we've got we've got Mal here from Cabaret Voltaire. So let's let's start the journey. Let's this is all so fascinating. But let's rewind it right back to before you were even a, 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 a struggling artist. But when you you know, what was your childhood like back in Sheffield and when you were growing up and where and how did music touch you for the first time back then? Let's start the story.
3: It's funny because I didn't come from my parents. Well, my mum, my dad had died, but we—I didn't come particularly from a musical kind of family. My dad did play violin, but I, I was never around to see him. I, you know, he'd gone for never had a chance to see him do that. So, but I think it was interesting, really, because I suppose I come from that period where I didn't have money to buy records. So, you, my connection with music was. It was kind of vicarious. I, I I got it through the radio. So going back to that, it wasn't a product for me. I didn't buy it. I didn't. I don't think I bought my first record till I was about fifteen or something like that. So it was you. You picked it up through family, through friends. My my sisters were big music fans. My sister was a massive Beatles and Stones fan. I used to go and see them in the early days. This is in the 60s. So so. You had elder, elder yeah, sisters. Yeah, elder sisters. So, so I grew up with that and cousins who were into really into buying music. So my education came from their record collections, really, and listening to music on the radio and Radio Luxembourg. And it had that massive allure because music seemed to be something that particularly radio luxembourg my sisters used to listen to that and i used to earwig at night i don't think it used to start until seven o'clock at night or something like that and you know you'd listen to it under the covers and so it just had that ethereal otherworldly distant kind of thing music was scratchy and sort of you know you you know mixed in with white noise as it came over the airway so i was sort of fascinated (laughs) by that um
0: you know tony uh, prince has done this don't you or did you, do you so no. Tony Prince from Radio Luxembourg was one has, of our, one of our trail places. Places. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah 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 because he started DMC and MixMag yeah. and all that sort of, of stuff course yeah and yeah, yeah absolute legend so yeah well, that's a nice that. connection
3: <laughs> the mixture of white noise and proper <laughs> music in <playing>, there yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also pirate radio stations I remember yeah. being a kid and going on holiday and it was great because you know you'd li- be able to listen to the pirate radio stations as well Caroline and things like that yes. so yeah, yeah, I, yeah. that's when I was really really young and that's I suppose that's what fascinated me with music, and, and particularly in music in a popular kind of context, because I come from a, that kind of world of radio and TV. And I mean, it's funny talking about electronic music and the whole history of it. I mean, I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't weaned on Stockhausen or you know things like that. <laughs> yes. it, it was it, that's that came later. So my fascination with sound and with music came from you know. Watching Doctor Who when I was yeah. sort of six, seven years old, mm. and things like that, and all those weird bits of soundtracks that you would hear—those were the things that attracted me to it. And music that I heard on the radio, you know. So. Yeah, that doesn't
0: surprise me that the BBC Radiophonic Workshop were uh, made your ears prick up when you were a little lad in Sheffield. <laughs>
3: yeah, it was—it was massive to, to us, you know. So the TV was a, as big an input to you know my. Music history, really. I suppose as as anything else, you'd listen to music that was surrounding you. My, my elder sister, she got married when I was about sort of eleven years old, ten, eleven years old, and her her husband at that time had this very eclectic music collection. That was kind of my education. I used to play their records and. And it wasn't a case of, well, oh, I'd like to hear this or I'd like to hear that. You just heard what was there. And his record collection was sort of Thelonious Monk, Beau Diddley, Mm. uh, Jacques Lussier, all these things that kind of crossed over from sort of kind of early rock and roll to sort of slightly esoteric jazz and this kind of stuff. So I kind of was listening to that because I had no other choice. Those were the records that were there. So yeah. I kind of, yeah, been really young listening to, yeah, I was probably about 11 years old listening to sort of Thelonious Monk because yeah, <laughs> the, it was there. And I've always been a massive Bo Diddley fan. And,
0: and you mentioned TV and the first the first track that you've chosen is, is the legendary Telstar, right? Yeah. And that, which, was that a TV theme tune? Because it sounds
3: like a theme tune of a TV show. Doesn't no, it? I don't. I don't think it was. It was. Um, I can't remember what. I've got this really strange sort of thing, which I think I've imagined. I've got this thing in my imagination that the tornadoes played it wearing spacesuits on TV, but I found no images of this, no YouTube footage, no nothing. So I don't know whether I imagined it might have that. Might been
0: wishful thinking. So I
3: think I may be that <laughs> in my own mind. But uh, it, and actually, the, it's funnily enough, the record that I knew before that. Uh, because I would, I, I didn't realize. I'd never heard. No one mentioned Joe Meek. It was just the Tornadoes. But the record that I would, I'd heard before that uh, was um, John Layton, Johnny Remember Me, which was uh, which was a Joe Meek song. And the reason I liked that was because John Layton was an actor, and he was in The Great Escape. And I'd been to see that with my nan. Yeah. So it's like, oh wow, this, this guy out of The Great Escape's made a record, and my auntie had it, and I used to play it all the time. So without realizing who joe meek was i'd had, had this massive fascination from being really really young and the tornadoes track *Telstar* was just like wow that's futuristic it's like totally mad so that was my very early kind of thing in music so yeah it's,
0: it's such a brilliant retro future track let's uh, remind ourselves now
2: trailblazers <laughs>
0: Retro Futurism, as chosen by Mal from Cabaret Voltaire and Wrangler uh, and and the rest, which we'll we'll talk about in due course. But uh, what a great memory. So, Mal, you're in Sheffield. You haven't got the money to buy records, but you're being fascinated and drawn towards, even at this early stage, quite futuristic sounding music that was emanating from your radio and from the television. That's not surprising in any way to me.
3: I must have always been drawn to those kind of lush productions, in because I was, without realizing it, you know, I was a big Phil Spector fan. We talk about these people now because they're part of music legend, but at the time it was just tracks and no one went Phil Spector or Joe Meek. We just heard the music. So I was a big f- fan early on of the first record I ever bought was uh, The Chiffon, Sweet Talking Guy. So that was the first 7-inch I actually bought. So I liked that kind of... I think I must have always been drawn to that kind of production. Also, quite quickly, I became... I was really into soul music. That was that was my thing. Both myself and Richard, you know, from the cabs, we were... We used to go to a, a club called The Ark, which was kind of like a youth club, and we'd have only been about 13, 14 years old. Uh, and we used to go to this club. It was on Friday nights. And we... Because we were... I'm loath to say this. We were skinheads because it wasn't skinheads as you understand. We were kind of at the end of the mod period. We were suedeheads, yeah. kind of suedeheads. Yeah. So it was the fashion. We were re- it's what we were really into. It was the clothes: uh, Harrington jackets and Doc and yeah. well, t- no, actually, th- strangely enough, no. I, it, Hawkins astronauts were far cooler than, than Hawkins Gotham.
0: astronauts. Hawkins
3: astronauts were the really cool shoes, or <laughs> or we used to wear Royals or bar- bar- Barter loafers were also really good. Two tone mohair suits, Crombies, that kind of stuff. Brutus and Ben Sherman, button downs. We were really into the fashion, we're really into the music. So I'm kind of conditioning it a little bit because otherwise people go, oh, you were skinheads. So you wore boots and braces and used to beat people up. But we weren't. We were very much into the music side of it. And we were. There's actually, I'm still friends, Richard, myself, and two of the guys who I'm still very good friends with, one of whom's a really famous musician. We all used to go (laughs) to this club called The Ark and dance to sort of. Scar to to sort of very early stuff, but yeah, I was a massive fan of you know Motown. First band I ever saw was Booker T and the MGs, and wow, I remember going up. shaking hands with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas when I was 15 years old when she was on stage nearly got thrown out <laughs> but uh, it didn't it was quite good they went oh, just, will you sit down please get away but Martha was great she shook hands with me and so it was really cool so my music after that was really into I was massively into soul music so, so this
1: all sounds very vibrant and, and are you making music at
3: the age of 13 14, 15, 16? no we didn't uh, Rich and I knew each other we were mates from, from this club and from going to the matches and we used to have, we were a bit hoodlum we used to hang around time we spend most of our lives in the crystal rooms which was a which was a sort of pinball rooms so rich and i So this is when we were about 14 but then we were at different schools so we kind of sort of separated a little bit uh, and then became mates again when we were about 17 18 and that's when we started making music so there was a right. kind of there was a sort of a gap a hiatus of a couple of years and then when we got back together it was at a time when we were going to see bands and we were sort of bunking into the students' union to watch bands and drink under you know, kind of underage and all this. So we were just on that cusp. And that's the point and that's when Chris, you know, met Chris and a few of the mates, we were a big group of mates. And that was the point when we just started to make music. So that was about seventy two, seventy three.
0: And you said going to matches, everybody in and around Sheffield is gonna be thinking, United or Wednesday?
3: Well, you'll be pleased to know I'm a Wednesday fan. As all as all of us are, we're all in fact. There's very few, apart from Sean Bean. I don't know a United fan. Actually. I feel really sorry for him. Is that because you just crossed them all off your, uh, off your friends list? One of the mates <laughs> from the arcade, Starks, is a United fan, so we'll forgive him that. But uh, yeah, apart from that, everybody, we all are, you know. Reverend, the makers are big wednesday fans you Yes, know? martin human league although you know we're yeah we're all we're all wednesday fans we all have it <laughs> it's a very for some reason everybody who's into music everybody's into bands is a wednesday
0: fan yeah so yeah that's, yeah, that's s- peculiar isn't
1: it so when you started making music just tell me how that uh how did that come together did somebody you know were you just hanging around in the crystal rooms and you said
3: should we start a band what it was and what brought us together when we were about 17 18 was uh what had happened was sort of the earth, I'd, again. I'm low to use these kind of collective terms like glam rock, but what had happened was Bowie, and what had happened was Roxy Music, and right. Roxy with this massive touchdown for yeah. for us. Right, and we were ra- really, really into Roxy. The very first, you know, first time they appeared on Top of the Pops and all this kind of stuff, mm. and on the old grey whistle test. I think they're on Colour Me Pop first. Actually, which is prior to that. So, and and it was because. All Of a sudden, the world got shaken up for us. It's took you know, it was the one thing that took me away from a lot of the kind of Motown and the sort of Stax music was this really strange, otherworldly kind of thing that happened. And it was Eno, you know, as a guy playing a VCS3 and with a tape recorder. And that mass that was a massive sort of seismic shift in all our lives. And we sort of went, Well, yeah, we want to do stuff, and we, we've got a tape recorder, you know, and we've got all these bits of... We couldn't... We, we went, OK, there's a model here for doing music that doesn't require us to have bass drums and all this kind of stuff and keyboards and a load of equipment and have to be in a room to do it. We could have tape recorders and a microphone and a homemade synth and some fuzz boxes and we could record all these kind of things in a loft, which was Chris's loft. So it was the... We followed the Eno model of just, well, we can... Experiment. We can't do the rock bit, but we can do the experimental bit. Great. So we started off doing it on from that side rather than the oh, we can play you know drums and bass and all that. So we gradually built it up from from that. You know that's how it started, just messing around with tape recorders in Chris's loft. So it's
1: fascinating. And, you, and the second piece of music you're, you you you've chosen is from one of the artists that you mentioned briefly. There,
3: the whole thing with, with Bowie are happening. Uh, was really, it was at that point in my life where I was sort of 17, 18, and, you know, first girlfriend and all this kind of stuff. uh, And Music started to relate to me and uh, and I chose oh you uh, oh, you pretty things because I suppose it was something that where I suddenly there was an emotional attachment to music, mm. whereas prior to that i didn 't have that, and mm. Bowie captured a lot of that, and it was a big change for for all of us it 's probably a nostalgic record that 's why I chose it. It probably says more about me and nostalgia and emotion and remembering that time of you know, hanging out with Judy, she was called the first girlfriend I had, and we'd listen to that and it was, you didn't have tons of records thousands of records, no iTunes so you couldn't just choose one, you'd have half a dozen LPs, and you'd listen to them for hours on end, and you'd yeah. flip them over and play them again and the records we listened to at that time were you know, the first couple of New York Dolls albums Lou Reed's Transformer you know, Hunky Dory and that's why I chose that, because it was at that, that kind of period, and it represents that period of music which all of us have a fondness for 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 how music worked with us emotionally and that kind of i chose that because it captured that track and i suppose at that time we all we were thinking that was a track that spoke to us so it was you know you're driving your mamas and poppers insane and it was like well yeah kind of that's what we want to do
0: well let's let's go nostalgic and uh, have some uh uh, accompanying emotions to uh, to this fantastic David Bowie tune.
2: Trailblazers, Stephen Malander.
0: Pretty things from Hunky Dory, as chosen by Stephen Mal Malinder from Cabaret Voltaire, our trailblazer for today. We we talked about this this pivotal Roxy Music track for you, and I'm imagining you as a teenager watching that stage and being one of the only people in the room. I'm guessing Richard might have been with you, and you, you were you it was probably only everybody else would have been fixated on Brian or on Phil, and but you were looking at the. The string, stringy, weird-looking guy with the uh, the synthesizer, in which he's plugging in things into a patch bay and and producing these otherworldly sounds. And interestingly, you've chosen a uh, as your uh, your pivotal Roxy Music record, a record that doesn't have Brian Ferry on it. No, there's no Brian.
3: <laughs> and strangely, I think it's. I've got a feeling Andy Mackay might have written actually of all the, of all the things. I chose it one because it it what it stands for as much as anything else it's probably one that no it's a Roxy track that no one's probably ever heard of and it's called the pride and the pain no one's ever heard of it it's on the b-side of pajama rama uh, and the reason I mention it is because it's this weird esoteric sort of track, and uh, and it's got I think it's got the line of "Stand back, the Emperor passes this way." It's some weird sort of cinematic thing, and it's a soundscape thing, really. Yeah, yeah. So I chose of... it one because it was just sort of so obscure, but also it represented that period when people used to put stuff on B sides of singles. I love Roxy for the fact that they in their initial stages they went, "We don't." We don't do sing, put singles on albums. Obviously, they did later on, but you know they did albums that were entirely made up of singles. But in the first couple of albums, they were singles, a special one alone, uh, you know, one-off thing. So they did Pajama Rama, and they did this really whack sort of track on the B-side that bears no relation to anything that you would think of for Oxy. but it was really good because it represented the time when people did put weird things on B-sides, and also we used to go into pubs. And there was jukeboxes, and we clear pubs out. You know, imagine a work, you know, a pub in Sheffield in 1973 or whenever. With loads of old blokes, and you put this really weird B-side of it because they were, you know, they were literally seven inches on jukeboxes yeah. in those days, and you put this weird, and that was great. You know, I just thought it was funny. So it was very <laughs> reminiscent of that period of how you use, which is what we wanted to do, was use music to wind people up. So uh-huh. it actually represented that as much as anything Get else. A little so, bit
0: practicing early, yeah, but it's, it's and it's so briny, no, isn't it? And it's it's yeah. it's is and most obscure.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: With with the image of clearing out that. Let's play it now and have the opposite effect because I think this is a fascinating track.
2: Trailblazers.
1: Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com. Where you'll also find special
0: Trailblazers playlists.
2: Deezer Originals. Trailblazers.
0: So, from willful Brian Eno-based obscurity, uh we'll we'll go to w- what that inspired in you and Cabaret Voltaire because you softened over the years. You know, when you started, you were very challenging. You, you were an obscure, very alternative band, weren't you when you first started?
3: Yeah, I <sighs> And I think probably over the years it's a it's a twofold thing we we went closer to the middle and the middle went closer towards really I suppose so and it's a natural evolution for people. but in that time, we were purposely experimental and we were purposely sort of challenging and and because probably we came as much if not more from art than we did from music. So therefore, the idea of Dada and the idea of sort of confronting people and art as uh, as a confrontational, challenging sort of thing. So that's where we came from and that's what we were doing in that early period. I think, obviously, as we progressed, you sort of try and put that into some kind of form. And so I think we always made music that was in some way challenging and contained things that somehow were dissonant, uncomfortable, unusual in, in, within the piece of music that we did, but we found a space for it, you know, it, it, in, a, in a more accessible way as time went on, we progressed. But in the early days, yeah, it was sort of, it was about annoyance, really. It was about <laughs> tape loops. It was about question, get, getting people to question what they were listening to, what the whole idea of what, you know, it was, it was us just being pranksters, really. Part of it was fun, but part of it was a serious thing of this is what we want to do. We want to challenge people.
0: You were always asking questions of, of your audience. You almost before you even had one.
3: Well, I think there's, there's also part of it where you go, "Well, we can't play, so we might as well annoy." You, you need to, you know, you need. We all want attention. We did music because we, you want attention. No, what, why do you do music if you don't want to create a reaction? You don't want people to respond, and we weren't going to please people, so we could at least annoy people. So it was a way of, you know, getting a reaction from what we did. And so it was, that was, those were the tools that we had. And so we, and also there there was a point, I mean, I mentioned before, you know, we weren't weaned on Stockhausen, but by this time we'd started to understand this much bigger world of music and of sound and of music concrete and composition and all those things. And, And so therefore we were starting to build this sort of more, esoteric, artful kind of world into what we did, but we were trying to increasingly bring it into a world that's still related to popular culture and we did want to bring records out and we did we did want to be we did want to sort of be successful uh, we, it wasn't about money but it was about actually having an effect it's mad because when I think about it now we used to send reel to reels off this is like you, you know around you know in the very early days we'd send them off to record companies we'd have those wonderful rejection letters I think Chris has probably still got them from you know Warner Brothers and EMI <laughs> uh, you know going thank you so much for sending this unfortunately at this moment in time we're not looking for something like this and I'm thinking good god you'd never be looking for something like this what would (laughs) we thinking, you know? But we'd send them off. We'd send these reel-to-reels with stupid packages off to record companies just for the hell of it. Part of it was serious in the sense that we were like, we really would like somebody to bring it out, even though we knew it was completely mad to think that they
1: would. So so I was going to ask about this, so that's great. So how did you uh,
3: get your first uh, record release? What what happened? That was actually, a lot of that is actually, we should... Give you know acknowledgement to John Savage. That was the he was the person who actually helped us do that really. And somebody who I saw last night was a guy called Richard Boone who started New Hormones, which was uh, one, the, released the first ever punk record, which is the Buzzcocks by yeah, Scratch. Yeah. Richard was uh, we basically we'd reached a point where we were we were we'd make we were making music or making sounds that were. Had a coherence to them, so you could play them. And so, you know, this is a few years later, and it was actually starting to become some form to what we did. Uh, and it was really the, the the prototype of the the first ex, you know the first release extended play. So it was kind of four or five tracks. And John Savage, we used to just, just, he wrote for sounds, and he used to send you know we'd send stuff in we'd send stuff in to John because the 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 actual journalist used to have a section in Sounds in the paper that said, you know, what each journalist was listening to. And we sent a cassette to John, and it came up, like, the next week, John Savage is listening to, it and it was Cabaret Voltaire, whatever it was, demos or something like that. And John, in his wisdom, decided he came up to meet us and interviewed us and then really sort of got in uh, Jeff Travis's ear at Rough Trade and mm-hmm. said... Um, you know, you should bring this out. And Richard Booms the same, and Richard had just brought out the first buscock record. So that all kind of combined, but John was the one who really pushed it, did the first feature on us, and pushed yeah. Jeff Travis to to sort of release it. So we became the first ever official release, really, on Rough Trade. They'd licensed a couple of tracks before that, um, Augustus Pablo and Metalla Band, so Extended Play became the first release. Wow, rough so, so trade, you were the... Too. I didn't know that. You were the first Rough Trade signed band. Yeah, so I think label- I think the Taliban had brought their record out in France, and then I think it was licensed to Rough Trade. I think that's it. But we were certainly the first UK. If yeah, so, wow. yeah.
0: Have you ever sort of smiled and thought to yourself, "I'm label mates with the Strokes"? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I Never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. And when you said the the, the, the earliest pe- uh, your early adopters, I thought you were going to say Stevo for some reason from some bizarre. Did he never have anything to do with uh, with with what you were doing? He well, folding? he did
3: later on when we. Um, Actually, after we'd done all the, because we then started to do stuff for rough trade and for factory, we were, we did stuff, we were released on factory records as well. We did that with Steve-O, Steve-O's role came uh, in the eighties when he he was re- he was a really big fan of, of what we were doing, and what we were doing is we were trying to set up a video label and we wanted some money. and Steve-O said, "If I lend you, I'll lend you five grand if I can do a record with you." So we took his money and then we did the record, which was uh, which was the crackdown. So yes. that's where Stevo came in. So we was it went it came out through Virgin, but as a management production thing, it, it was it was on Sun Bizarre, which was sort of us and Soft Cell and Yes the the her uh, and so we were part of that stable of bands um, on on Sun Bizarre and and with the with the factory link, tell us about that. We were on a factory sample. Us Joy Division, uh, Deroty Column. That was the very first. So yeah, the very first, first yeah. factory. Yeah, we're okay. On <laughs> um, so we were on that. Well, um, and at that time, we'd 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 actually done. I, th- I don't think we'd done Nag Nag Naga. No, we hadn't done Nag Nag Nag, I don't think, but we'd done the first EP for fa- for uh, for Rough Trade. We'd yeah. done the factory sample for Factory, and then it was a case of who you know who we could get to bring out the first album. Mm. And Tony had put his money into doing the Joy Division album on No Pleasures, and so Jeff we went with Rough Trade, so it was... If it had been 12 months later and, you know, Factory had, had money, we would maybe have done the album for Factory, but that moment in time we were ready to release an album and Rough Trade were in a better position to do it, so it was quite amicable, it was really nice, and we w- went back and we obviously did more stuff with Factory, we had a really good relationship with Tony and, you know, obviously with, with Joy Division and all the bands on there. Why don't we play
0: the uh, the early cabs track that, that you've chosen from when you were at your, your more
3: challenging? I chose Seconds Too Late... I, just, I still love this. I don't know why. It's just what... And Jeff Travis produced it. At, well, sort of produced it. Uh, he was at the mixing desk when we did it. So and Jeff where could, were you,
0: Did you come to London to do no, this? No, we yeah. did
3: that one in... We'd done Nag 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 in a studio in London, but uh, we did Seconds Too Late, probably not long after that. I think just, probably just after Voice of America and we did it up in Sheffield and... Um, yeah, Jeff worked on that. So, yeah, that was... And I don't know, it's just what something about that. Seconds Too Late worked really well. It's got lovely drum machine sound, vocoder sound. All came together. It's, you know, Chris was still with us then, so it was a nice. It, was, it had all those kind of connections. It's probably pure Cabaret Voltaire.
2: Trailblazers. Stephen Malander. <laughs>
0: Early Cabaret Voltaire. Uh, as chosen by one of Cabaret Voltaire. It's uh, an absolute joy to have you here, Mal. And it was interesting to me what you were saying about uh, there being a, a dissonance and a, and a conflict, if you like, with with the, the records that you were making, even when you were much poppier later, you know, after the crackdown and censoria. And, and, and my mind comes to even censoria, which is probably your your poppiest tune, you know, from from that period, that there was a great conflict that I love. And I still I quote, I was talking about about this only yesterday to somebody as an example of early sample culture and about this fantastic uh what would you call it an oxymoron or uh, you have this brilliant conflict because you've got two samples one is like a zulu a zulu choir or a zulu singer and the other one is a klu klux klan guy and and it's just so profoundly brilliant having those two, and that, and that's your dissonance there wasn't it
3: yeah, I mean I I think we've always pl- played with those ideas of of tension and conflict and just juxtaposing things. So yeah, That's there is a, a lovely irony in, in in doing that. Yeah. Uh uh, I mean, I think it was just, it was part of where we came from to use those tapes and use those sounds, same as we did with film to incorporate kind of TV footage and scratch footage or whatever you may want to call it. But it, it it's also harks back to those original experimental days when we were using tape recorders, was to use found sound and to use things that were around us, like a Duchamp thing of using ready-made. So we incorporated things that were around us into the records that we made. And so there were always, you know, those sounds. Sample sounds were always, even, actually it was before samplers sample actually existed. So yeah. there literally tape recordings or cassette recordings that were put in there. So it was always an element of what we did and it it's kind of relates to that music concrete and all those sorts of things. So we always tried to try and retain that.
0: Yeah, because I remember when, when sample culture actually became a thing, I remember thinking, Cabaret Voltaire were doing this like years ago.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, you know, so ahead of the curve. And like you say it wasn't samplers didn't even you know, Akai hadn't even put out a sampler, you were doing this with tape loops.
3: Yeah, we were doing it with loops and just running literally running tapes in. So tape recorders were always sort of a, a massive tool for us in how we did it. We've we've
0: talked a lot about context of stuff and, and about the tracks and the, and the production if you like but um let's not forget that you're a front man as well and a, and a singer and a, <laughs> and, a, and a you know and a melody writer and you and, and the, the can track that you've chosen kind of made me smile because it's got this especially at the beginning he he addresses the microphone in quite a whispery way and that was always your style wasn't it you you were a quite an understated singer uh, and, and it was more about the there was a vibe more than just, you know, shouting a, a big melody.
3: I suppose you kind of work with the voice that you've got, and I always did like that. I think there's something kind of suggestive and not creepy about it, but I think it was sort of, there was an intimacy about it, and I think a lot of music sort of it, vocally always comes a bit too bombastic for me, and it's not really my style, so I always quite like quite the sort of... Seductive nature to the voice. I probably don't do it as much as I used to, but i I am want to go back to doing that a little bit more. Actually, on stuff I'm doing, going to be doing.
0: Yeah, it was actually months. thinking uh, back. You know, it was sexy. Actually, now that you mention it, I never already thought about it like that. But it actually was a, it was a, it was a very sexy way of singing. That sort of whispery, understated, like um, you know, it's it, it was it's like that. I don't know, like a like a like a nightfly jock. You know, it's mm. that it, it's that it's that thing, isn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, that was kind of what I wanted to achieve but it was also it's the tools you work with the tools you've got and I'm not you know much as I admire wonderful singers and uh, I'm not one. <laughs> I think I'm capable of doing different types of vocals, but at that, you know, at that period, it was nice to be able to do that sort of whispery voice because it was just, I guess, part of a signature for me, and it just didn't feel as annoying as bellowing in someone's face. <laughs> yeah,
0: the self-awareness, as Clint Eastwood said, and I think it was Magnum Force or one of, one of those uh, '70s cop films. Man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> <And> I did. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh shall we um shall we play this uh this wonderful can track that you've
3: uh, chosen tell us and tell us uh why it means so much to you can was such a, an influence i mean as years have gone by you know i think their influence has been recognized from you know leiden and loads of people love can and there's been great books written about them but i think it was also because we managed to see can play a few times two three times so I actually, you know, managing to see a band like that, they were such a sort of mysterious band in some ways. And I've just been a massive... I was always a massive fan. I was always... I I really, in truth, I always wanted to be Jackie Leibsit because I just thought he was... The the drummer was just the most amazing drummer who ever lived, you know. It's, like, stunning. So uh, I think it was just a personal connection to that. I think also the... Not everything, some of the stuff they did meandered and went all over, and I love that as well, but this was just captured, Moonshake captures that, and it's Demo, and it's just a lovely kind of voice, and, yeah, I do... They represented that period. I think most people sort of try and associate and electronic music and everything with craft work but it's a little bit easier to, to do that you know we all love craft work but there's something about that whole kind of German sort of space funk that 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 can did that I just thought was wonderful so yeah it's a bit sort, more human yeah and all of them were wonderful you know obviously sadly passed on but with you know with holger and and jackie and what have you so obviously Herman schmidt's still around which is wonderful but yeah they they were they were a big influence I thought, and they had a kind of funk to them which was so natural and i did did appreciate that so it related back to that earlier period when i was into the temptations or whoever it may be or james brown curtis mayfield they just had a little bit of that in there as well
2: trailblazers
0: So can one of the coolest bands in the whole world ever? We're talking to uh, Mal from uh, Cabaret Voltaire, one of the coolest bands ever, and who's who's now chosen a a Prince track. I'm kind of surprised by that, but then it, in a way I'm not. He's such a supreme producer and also you said that you were a soul boy when when you you were growing up so there's a there's a a connection there and also he was kind of a
3: real alternative pop star wasn't he there was you know well i mean for for a number of reasons i chose it i mean one that i've seen prince play again so you know somebody i've seen play a lot of times but also that track sort of represents a period because I lived in London for sort of 10 years or longer 12 years I think so and Prince very much spanned that period of me being in London I, and I went to a couple of Prince's parties where he played you know private parties I saw him playing Camden Palace and he did the Kensington rooftops and all that so used to end up going to Prince's own parties which were wow. brilliant because he used to do when he did a gig when he because he's. You know, play Wembley for five nights, and then he'd then he'd do it. Go and as soon as he came off stage, he'd go and do a gig. And I've seen him play, do a three-hour set after he'd done a three-hour set. Wow, (laughs) that's amazing. uh, And and so it represents that kind of you know fun, sort of carefree, mad time that I had in London. It represents that, but also you know I played you know I played at the, his club in uh, Minneapolis and he Did came you? it was great because Prince came to the sound check which was really funny there was this little silhouette I shouldn't say that because he was small but a <laughs> little silhouette at the back you know and it was like oh my god Prince is here we're doing the sound check and we were like oh wow and then when we spoke to the bar mate you know the kind of the staff afterwards they went was that Prince they went oh yeah he's always turning up he's really annoying he comes to check on the stock behind the bar and all this <laughs> it was like all of a sudden this kind of Godlike sort of Paisley Park figure was kind of down to as far as the bar stuff was, you know, was concerned. He was just this bloke who used to turn up and sort Bit of annoy boy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was, for us, it was like great. So it was brilliant playing in his club, and that was part of a US tour. Yeah, it? we toured in the US and we and we played there because it, you know, it's where he filmed Purple Rain. And yeah. So. What's it is it 20 I can't remember the name of the club 20, 21 east or something like I can't remember yeah, but yeah, that's where it was, so amazing and yeah, and why not I chose it also because sign of the Times is one of my favorite ever tracks, you know, and it's as simple as that. I chose it just because it's a wonderful piece of music, but also to represent a brilliant artist and someone who kind of marked the passage of a lot, a lot of my life and he was brilliant yeah
2: Trailblazers Stephen oh, wow well.
1: Time
0: Baby, make a speech Star Wars fly Neighbors should shine at home But if a night falls and a bomb falls Will everybody see the dawn? Time A delight and a surprise that uh, Mal from Cabaret Voltaire has chosen a Prince track. And uh, always a pleasure to hear uh, his royal purpleness uh, in any way, shape or form. And so the next track that you've chosen is, uh, in a sense, Something more predictable in my mind. The the brilliant Japanese uh, composer and producer, who many people my age and of my uh, musical heritage will remember as a Japan collaborator, Uh, David Sylvian and Mick Kahn, etc. Collaborator of uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto. So uh, yeah, tell us, uh, tell us what what sort of period of your life
3: this this record represents and where you were
0: at and why you chose this
3: in a sense. Uh, Well. I, probably as, as with all the tracks, I chose them because I think they're just wonderful pieces of music. Um, and I think Ricci's just, uh, even to this day, I mean, he's just been doing the stuff with Elvin Noto, which is amazing. So just a testament to an amazing artist who's still producing wonderful music. What it represented also was I can't believe that he made this track in 1980 because you listen to it and you go, this is what people were making. It's what what it's like, almost like what Warp did. So, but it was eight years later. But he was making this in 1980. It was like a template for electronic kind of dance music. I mean, and even the versions that have come after was Ed and Andy uh, played did did a wonderful version of it. Swag Chris Duckerfield did an amazing mix of version of of this right in Lagos track. It's just such a kind of sort of iconic track it was made in 1980 but it sounds like it was made 10 years later it's like he predicted what was going to happen 10 years later and producers from that kind of club period like Swag and played actually were able to kind of they never improved the original really they did great mixes of it but they never improved what was really he predicted what, the, what music was going to go in the kind of the, that kind of massively sort of symbolic kind of club period of the late 80s, early 90s, and he just made a wonderful piece of music. And I did meet him when we when I went to Tokyo for the first time, which would have been about 82. The first thing, we we got off a plane and we were totally jet-lagged and hung over and everything, and the first thing we did was go for a Chinese bill with Yellow Magic Orchestra, <laughs> which I thought was really weird. And I had, I'll never forget it, I had... It was... (sighs) It was jellyfish, and it was it was the most revolting thing. I'll never forget his most revolting thing I've ever had in my life. <laughs> but yeah, I went for a Chinese meal with Yellow Magic Orchestra and Amazing. Right, yeah, Tokyo, <laughs> and, yeah and, and we did get sort of sort of see them. bit and yeah, what yeah, what a wonderful sort of experience. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't remember me, but I remembered me in Yellow Magic Orchestra. Yeah, and yeah, I'm such a such an admiration for what he's done over the years.
0: Amazing, there. and you know that David Sylvian was listening in the same way that you were and he there's this sound on Riot and Lagos there's this like the keyboard hook sound which literally just got t- taken by by Japan for, for I think their fifth album for that you know with like ghosts and uh, that period when Japan actually became big and got on top of the pops it was with Ryuichi Sakamoto keyboard sounds that they did that
3: I think the other part of it is I think it's one of the best titles ever for a track I, I'll agree with that I, 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 you'd go for it just for the name wouldn't you yeah, I, yeah,
1: I you. remember when it came out it it, it just couldn't have been. Cooler than the the artist name and where he came from, because Japan was. You did we didn't have the internet, did we, in the eighties? So Tokyo and whatever was this other world of it in insanely cool stuff. And then yeah, just those were riot in Lagos. How cool is that as well?
0: I I agree with you totally. Let's hear it now. Yeah, let's hear it. And, and anyone who doesn't know the track will will know the sound if they're a Japan fan.
2: Trailblazers.
0: Let's bring the circle forward to what you're doing now, which is Wrangler. And I, I've seen pictures of your, the studio that you work in, and it's almost pornographic the amount of uh, uh, analog synths that you've got in there. Like I, I think it's the biggest wall of analog synths I've ever seen. <laughs> so uh, so covetous of it. And uh, so tell us about Wrangler. And 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 for those who are not in the know, let's update them with a with a Wrangler tune or a Wrangler remix.
3: Wrangler existed before I kind of came along. Wrangler was uh, Benj from John Fox and Math and uh, obviously oh, yes. his studio. So I work with Benj and, and Phil Winter from Tongue. So they'd, I think, done One 7-inch before and they were making electronic music. And then I I kind of... Phil and I are old friends and he just said... Oh, you've got to come and see this studio. You've got to come and meet Benj. You'll love him. You've got to meet Benj. And so uh, I came up to London. This is what, because I've been living in Australia and I came up to London not long after I arrived from Australia and just went in the studio. And yeah, Benj was brilliant. Not only is he amazing and brilliant stu- studio and, uh, you know, as you say, it's sort of, you kind of look at looking awe at what all the gear that he's managed to amass over the years. So I'm very lucky that I can get to play with some of it. But yeah, um, I, I ended up working. I basically turned up the studio thinking I was just coming to meet him and say hello and have a cup of tea. But we did four tracks that morning and we released the first one, came out as a seven inch. So Ben just went, Go on, then let's make some music. Go on, let's go, you know, let's get going. And we did. We wrote, uh, I'm trying to think which it was the first, um, first track. That we seven inch and it's co- it'll come to me in a moment but uh yeah so we i worked from the, the moment we met we just started working within 20 minutes There was no i did get a cup of tea but it went straight away we're just releasing our third fourth album third studio album fourth actual album because we did a remix album so mm, yeah uh, we've just finished a new album called the situation which will be out early next year i've chosen a john fox track that we remixed, but yeah. it's actually not a remix of John's track. It's a remix of a version that Gazelle because Twin I did. I was gonna say, this is so a Gazelle that Gazelle, Gazelle Twin, Twin. Yeah. The track that so, I
0: championed on my show. Yes. I absolutely love this track and so cool to see you hooking up with Gazelle Twin, who are just one of the coolest things out there at the moment. And I just I smiled when when I saw that you guys had uh, collaborated. I, I
3: thought I mean I think it's it's partly to recognise that there's a kind of rich sort of community of people and i feel very fortunate to work with a lot of these people be friends with elizabeth be friends with john and work with benj and you know neil from uh from from blamange and there's just sort of of a whole collective of people that you know we interact and work with so i chose a track that represented that kind of i suppose group of people so it's our version of elizabeth's vigaselle twins version of john fox as he's a liquid
0: yeah, and I, I think it's fair to say that you could, you could, if there was a cultural family tree, you know, that started with Cabaret Voltaire, it, it, uh, right now it would end with Gazeltwin, wouldn't it? There would be, in effect, there would be no Gazeltwin, I don't think, without Cabaret Voltaire. So let's, it'd be really interesting to hear this track. It's a, it's a fantastic piece of music.
2: Trailblazers, Stephen Malander.
0: We are in the now, and we're at the end of uh, this podcast. It's flown by so fast, but we've got to get out of this studio. So let's ask you the, the final question that we asked to everyone, which is, when the aliens land... If the aliens were to land on on this planet, and they and they are basically doing a survey to see to, this is intergalactic superhighway that needs to happen, and they're they're going to have to blow up one one or two planets, and that they're just deciding which way to go. And so, if you had to play the aliens a piece of music to save this planet, what would that piece of music be?
3: It was quite easy, really, because obviously, you know, we're talking in terms of, you know, the mothership comes from another planet to tell us what's going on. So there's only one thing you can fight a mothership with, and that's another mothership. (laughs) So you get George Clinton and you get Bootsy and you get Parliament and you play Flashlight and our mothership trumps their mothership because that's just one of the best tracks ever. Bootsy plays drums on it. I think Bernie Worrell plays three moogs for the bass line, so we got to, we got to hit him with some funk, can't we? Really, Bootsy
0: put down his bass and played drums on this.
3: Yeah, Bootsy played drums on Flashlight. Yeah. Wow! Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow! So you know we got we got we got to give him back. So yeah, Bootsy and, and George have got to do it.
0: I love the logic there. It, good it, logic. It, it is absolutely unf- you you can't fall hit that logic. Hit him with the funk, and yeah, totally. Can't and fail. I think I think it would save the earth. And if it didn't save the earth, at least you would you would die. You'd be vaporised in the gorgeous knowledge that their mothership would now be uh, kitted out in velour uh, with v- velvet curtains and those those baubly things, th- th- those like valances across their uh, across their windscreen. You know, like a nineteen seventies pimp. <laughs> um, Mal, uh, um, absolute joy to uh, to have you to have you do this. What is on the horizon for you and for Wrangler, for you personally and professionally?
3: Um. Well, the Wrangler album is done, so we're just about to master it, and I'm really excited about that because we really, we're really, really chuffed with the new album, so we can't wait to get that out. And I'm just doing my own album. As Ben said, it's 30 years since you did an album actually under your own name, so you're about time. So um, I'm just writing my own, uh, doing my own album. Wow, really? So, yeah. And, so. and are you
0: doing that completely on your own, or are you working with a, with another producer or an engineer?
3: Be- Ben's engineering and uh, co-producing. I'm writing everything myself. I'm writing stuff at home, and then I'm going down and yeah using the the fabulous stuff studio yeah, stuff yeah. That, ben just, that ben just got down there so yeah, i'm working on that and obviously the we'll be doing live gigs with wrangler next year so uh, so that this must feel peculiar to you doing something on your own because you're
0: you're you're such a collaborator through your career
3: yeah, I mean, I kind of still am collaborating because I, I didn't. I wanted to do it in a studio. I just didn't want to do it sort of at home, laptop. So I'm writing it all like that, but taking it into a studio. So, I, you know, the studio, it's, it's wonderful that Benj will you know let me work with him. But, yeah, it's quite it's, it's quite nice, actually, because I usually am able to write all the music. It's So it's kind of fun going, oh, I don't, you know, obviously I do work with other people and it's quite odd, but I am actually really enjoying it. And I've now suddenly become a control freak. So, yeah. Hmm. But I do love collaboration i do love the idea of bouncing sort of you know ideas off with other people and i think there's such a there's, it's just that's a natural way for me to work i think it brings brings out the best in me and hopefully i can bring th- out things in other people
0: fantastic well i've got to apologize to nick because i feel as though because i'm talking to one of my heroes i've hogged this one it's, been uh, a, it's is, not a problem is, is, is there, any, is, is, there a, is there a question that your last question that you're burning to ask mal while we've got the chance uh,
1: not that i'm burning to ask no because i've had a fantastic overview, and I'm I'm good. I,
3: I think it's been fantastic. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for inviting me in. It's lovely to chat. It's lovely conversation. Great, fantastic. Thank uh,
0: you. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Mal, and thank you, Nick.
2: Trailblazers. Yeah. originals Trailblazers
1: Thoroughly enjoyed that. Yes, Mal from Cabaret Voltaire. Thank you so much, Eddie, for lining that one up. That was, it was a
0: pleasure. It's always nice to shine a light in a gap in any of our dance music experience. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, what a pleasure. Now, um, please subscribe now via your usual podcast provider and leave us with a five star review if you felt as though it deserved five stars. Head to deezer.com to check out our full playlist and more episodes.
2: Trailblazers.
0: And next time, the trance hero, Paul Van Dyke
2: These Originals.